Well, you know, it, um... You're listening to WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, community radio from Goddard College. I listen when I'm naked. From WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, this is the Magical Mystery Tour. beginning the end so where to start this is a journey into sound brought to you in living color on wtdr there is nothing wrong with your television set we are controlling transmission for the next hour sit quietly and we will control all that you see and hear you are about to participate in a great adventure you are about to experience the awe and mystery which reaches from the inner mind on wtdr it's happening I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I say God. How do you like that? Why, it's preposterous. Thank you very much. Let me warn you that I say what I think. Say what I think. Say what I think. I'm a complete individual. I see the individuals. I'm against communism, capitalism, fascism, Nazism. I'm against everything and I've often wondered what it would be like to be happy 24 hours a day.
Epstein, join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Today, we're going to continue down the quantum and relativity rabbit hole with Nassim Haramein, with an interview with Nassim Haramein that makes this trippy world of quantum physics and relativity even easier to understand than you ever thought possible. And he even unifies them in his own amazing way. Thank you everyone for joining us on this fireside chat. I spent an hour with Nassim this morning and uh, this man blew my mind. The conversation went in every direction from human consciousness to time travel to basically can we travel at the speed of light to wormholes to Nikola Tesla and it's going to be a very interesting conversation Nassim because you're kind of brilliant. Oh thank you. I think the same of you. I so, think the same of everybody actually. I think it's, it's an amazing thing to be alive and you know, the miracle that happens in a person every second of the day is just, it's just brilliant. So the first question I'd like to open with, Nassim, and we also have questions from the tribe and from people watching on Facebook Live. So if you're watching on Facebook Live, thank you for joining us. First question, Nassim, and I guess it's, it, it's more really of a subject matter I'd like you to talk about. You focus a lot on connection on how when you study the universe you find that everyone, every atom, every soul, every human being, every plant, we're all connected. Let's start by talking about connection. Right, it came from a more philosophical and intuitive sense when I was young, when I was younger, that uh, I had in school these thoughts um, because I didn't pay attention much um, to what was going on up front. I commonly was thinking about all kinds of other things and, and I start to feel like the space between things may not be empty. 
you know, we only experience a very small part of what's going on in the space. There's all kinds of electromagnetic fields, there's all kinds of stuff that's happening in the space that we don't experience directly. And I started to think maybe the space between things is not empty, but it's full and it connects all things. But eventually, as I studied physics and I understood some of the basis of quantum field theory, I realized that actually we had found that the space is not empty at all, but full of energy. And eventually I wrote equations, I wrote physics on the space. I, I described the space. And when I wrote these physics, it, it outputted very fundamental constants in physics, like the mass of particles and their radius and the structure of uh, galaxies and the structure of the universe and, and all these things. And as I wrote these mathematics, something remarkable happened. Something I instinctively had come up with when I was young, but, but that just came out in the mathematics just beautifully. And that is that all the information of every other particles in the universe, every atom in the universe, seems to be present holographically in each atom, which connects them all through this wormhole network in the structure of space, like, like an information highway that is transferring information at very, very high bug rate, and that permits systems to self-organize. So, so it's really at the deep level that I see the connection between all things, not in only a philosophical way, but actually writing physics on it actually works. And this, and this connection is the basis for a lot of your research. And the research you're doing right now is astonishing, because if Nassim's research is able to prove some of the things he's talking about, it has huge implications for humanity. For example, warp drives. For example, the ability to control gravity, to, within the next 75 years, be able to go on a family vacation to Jupiter and back in record time by leveraging the control of gravity and wormholes. So let's, let, let's talk about that. What are you researching right now? Well, actually, to go to Jupiter, you won't need a wormhole with a gravitational drive. But if you want to go to Alpha Centauri, you'll need one. <laughs> um, but um, yes, I, I'm working on these things because not only that, you, you know, when you calculate the amount of energy, obviously, if everything is connected through this wormhole structure, uh, the micro wormhole at the quantum level, which will I'll present this tomorrow. Um, the energy level in a centimeter cube of space is enormous. And, um, and if we extracted just a billionth of a billionth of a percent of the energy that's in a centimeter cube of space in the structure of space-time, uh, we could run the world for millions of years. So you're saying that in the centimeter cube of space, mm -hmm. right, there's an energy, and I believe um, you, you refer to it, or people commonly call it zero-point energy, Yes, and that if we was can learn, Einstein. If yeah. we can learn to extract that, right. we can run humanity for millions of years. That's unlimited energy. Exactly. And it's, it's actually, according to what I found, it's actually the energy that runs reality, that runs the world. And eventually I wrote papers that advanced these mathematics into 
actually that's the energy that makes you a conscious human being. Um, it actually organizes system to eventually arrive to a system that's complex enough to become self-aware. So that's interesting. So are you saying that zero-point energy has a tangible relationship to consciousness? Yes, absolutely. According to what I found, and, and I want to pre precisely mean what I found, um, what I mean by what I found is that when I wrote these mathematics and I extracted these masses and these radiuses, I was, I was able to make predictions, very important prediction about the nuclear atom that was confirmed in accelerators in Switzerland. And my solution is the most precise solution on Earth today uh, from theoretical tenant. Uh, the standard model is off by 4%, which is like, you know, a universe away in, in quantum theory. So, so what, what I'm saying to you today is not just based on nice mathematics that may be too complex for you to understand or philosophy. It's actually now confirmed in experimental studies. That, that's incredible. Now, some scientists have said you deserve a Nobel Prize. Some scientists have said this is hogwash. Yes. How do you deal with that sort of, of <laughs> that huge polarization? Yes. In, in well, you know, I cry and I laugh. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it's always difficult to, right. to make a change. You know, we can see that, I don't know about you, but in my life, you know, every large changes are difficult. But what I appreciate about you is that every great innovator was called a quack at some point, including Tesla, right? Uh, yes. But what I appreciate about and you Einstein. is that, yes, and Einstein, yeah. what I appreciate about you is that you're not just looking at matter and energy, but you're looking at matter, energy, and consciousness and how they all interrelate. Right, and, and, and you know, it's like, and as you, as you find these pieces, as you find these little morsels of, of information across the physics, um, you end up with stuff in chemistry, and you end up with stuff with biology, and you end up with, you know, and it, it just built, because if you have the correct foundation, you see, we make, humans, we make these divisions in science. You know, we call this chemistry, and we call this physics, and we call this, you know, biology, and all of this. But the universe doesn't do that. You know, just like the universe doesn't make lines on the planet and say, this is this country, and this is this country, right? And so, so basically, the universe must be unified since it produces all this amazing biostructure that we call our reality from the physics all the way to consciousness. And so when you start to find something, and that's my belief, when you start to find something that's very deep, fundamental at the truth of reality, then all this starts to unravel, and that's what I think is happening now. So the question is, what then is consciousness? We're using that word a lot, yes. and you said that consciousness is all around us. It is it, it, it's related to the zero-point field. Correct. What is consciousness to you? Right. It's an, it's an important question because it's becoming more and more... You know that when I started to give talks in physics conferences in the 90s, in the early 90s, uh, mid-90s, um, if you said the C word, it was like, 
automatic dismissal. You were asked right. to leave, right? Uh, that was like, you could say the F word, but you could not say the C word. And, um, and, and so it was very difficult at the time, you can imagine, but, but now it's, it's completely flipped around. Like the, the cool thing for physicists, especially after they retired, is to work on right. what is the source of consciousness and how did consciousness occur. Then. And you know, and often people talk about you know, this new idea that consciousness may be at the base of reality. And, um, and, and it's, it's in many cases um, not very helpful because you, the word consciousness is used as if you said God is the base of reality. You still haven't told me anything about what that is, right? If you say consciousness, okay, what do you mean by that? Well, if you look at definitions of consciousness, it's not very useful neither. It says it's something that has to do with self-awareness, right? Becoming self-aware. What's important in that self-awareness understanding is that there's something that resembles a feedback, right? You knowing you are you. And uh, as I wrote the physics that described these fundamental laws, uh, these fundamental principles of, of physics, I realized that the information, and, and it was already in the philosophy that I, was, that I had developed, but it, it showed up in the equation, that the information is, is circulating uh, in feed-forward feedback structures. And so, so that you can think of this Planck field, which is an electromagnetic field, uh -huh. this, this zero-point energy field, um, as bits of information. And this is exactly how I wrote the equation. That's why it's a holographic equation. And, and you can think of the bits being exchanged between the field and the surface and the interior of particles. And as you write the equations for this, it starts to make, uh, to, it starts to look a lot like a feedback structure of information through the universal network. So in other words, the universe is feeding information to itself. Exactly. And that's how it grows. And that's how it becomes more and more complex and highly organized. So the universe is becoming more conscious as time goes on. Exactly. It's getting wiser. The universe is getting wiser and wiser. Yes. Right? But the other Hopefully. thing But the other thing is <laughs> you've uh, you, you've also said that time doesn't exist. In the realm of consciousness, time is an illusion. Yes. Um, and you've suggested that consciousness is going back and rewriting itself. That's right. So it, basically the information, what we call time is a linear set of information along a specific vector of space. So let me say this in a more simple way. No memory, no time. If you can't remember what happened just before, you don't know that there's a linear function of time. You don't have evolution. So I changed, I, I modified Einstein and I'm sure he's okay with it, but I I changed the, the, the wordy coin, space-time, to space-memory um, because it's more fundamental. Uh, memory is required for time to exist, for evolutionary systems to exist. So I, I start to realize that maybe in this 
plant field of information, we're leaving information as we're moving through space. And we're basically like, like we put information on a hard drive in the magnetic field medium of a hard drive, we're leaving information on the Planck oscillating field of space-time, on the electromagnetic field of space-time. And that's what we call our memory. That memory is not in the brain. I actually wrote a paper on this. It was my first paper in biophysics a few years ago. And it, it just got cited by a very, really good team of, of uh, as a biophysicist in, in the Netherlands and, and it got a lot of press but basically it's saying that consciousness is not in your brain but your brain and your whole body is like a bio oscillator antenna tapped into that field of information so so basically information you is on the structure of space and in each coordinates Think of each coordinate as one Planck second, which is really, 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 really short, right? It's like 10 to the minus right. 44 seconds, right? And, and, and just, and can you give us perspective of what that looks like? In our prior conversation, you spoke about how the Earth is going around the sun, right. but the universe is expanding, so the sun is moving. So yes. technically, we are moving through space like this. Making a spiral. A spiral. Right. Yeah, and like after a year, we're like billions of kilometers away from where we were a year prior. And we've left information on the structure of space each one of us along that path and that's what we call our past that is our memory imprint on the structure of space which we're entangled with because everything is connected and all the protons in your body are connected to that information now, now, now here's another question where does my consciousness end and your consciousness begin oh that's a good question <laughs> if consciousness is also between us right isn't it all connected in some way? It is, but each coordinates in space-time is observing the universe from a different perspective. If I put an object between you and me right now, you are, and, and I don't know, we have like what, like 400 people in the room? If not one of us is seeing this object from the same perspective, every one of us, because we are in different coordinates in space-time, are seeing a different part of this right. object we're all gathering different set of information so although we're all part of the same consciousness flow of information we are all in our feedback structure feeding a different set of information that and all the combined sets of all the coordinates in space-time produce the reality we see do you guys follow this it's a little bit of a feedback thing how many of you here are wishing you paid more attention in science class? <laughs> you wouldn't have got that at school. But, but, <laughs> but if the universe... So if the universe is self-aware, is conscious, yeah. and we are some of the most sophisticated creations in the universe, and we, and we all are individualization, right? Because we're all gathering different sets. Right. So we all look a little different because the universe is organizing in the feedback, is organizing your body a little different than me because you're feeding the universe a little different set of information than I am. So we are just a highly organized, a highly organized bit of the universe That's where right. universal consciousness is expressing itself. That's right. You're like a, you're like, the structure of space-time extending itself 
and feeding information back to the whole. Wow. Yeah. That, that's a very interesting way of, of looking at it. Yes. Now, Einstein, Einstein mentioned it. I mean, he approached it in some of his statements. What, what specifically did he say? He, uh, I'm going to paraphrase the statement. I, I think I have it in my presentation tomorrow, but I, something along the lines that um, objects are not in space, but they're an extension of space itself. Wow. Okay, so we got a couple of questions, and um, I wanted to pick some questions. Um, this particular question is from a 14-year-old girl who's in the room, Tamara. Tamara, you want to stand and just wave to the audience? Hi. Thanks so, for being here. So Tamara's question, Tamara, did you pay attention to science in school? Okay, so Tamara's from Belarus. Good girl. And her question is this. <laughs> if there's consciousness all around us... Don't believe everything they tell you, though. <laughs> Is there a way we can tap into this consciousness, and is that what intuition is? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, well, you're... So that's what I was saying earlier, is like, you're making a distinction between you and consciousness, and there's none. You, you are tapping your consciousness, what you call your self-awareness, your consciousness, is the tap. You're tapped already. But you can increase the amount of information flow. You can increase your influence on the structure of space. I, I call it, you know, vacuum engineering. You can, you can create a larger tap to have a larger influence on the structure of space if you become aware that you have that ability, that you can connect with the space. So, so, so how would you do that? Well. The equation says that every proton in the nuclei of every one of your atoms, and you're made out of 100 trillion cells, each cell is made out of 100 trillion atoms. So there's a lot of those little guys, okay? It's very advanced, it's very complex, it's remarkable. It's remarkable, like there's a miracle happening every billionth of a second in your body. I, there's a billion, billion, chemical change occurring every second, I mean, a million cell division every second, it's remarkable. So all this is happening, right? And the equation says that each proton is connected to all other protons in the universe, that all the information in the universe is present in each one of them. So if you actually want to know about the universe, where do you go? inside yourself, right? So we are constantly putting our attention outside ourselves because that's what we learn to do. But there's other techniques to help you bring your consciousness inside yourself, right? And if you do that, you can get more and more conscious of the deeper layers of your existence because you think of yourself as one thing, but you're made of all these billion trillions of things and you become aware of them, you go deeper and deeper in them, eventually you can get deeper level of information about the rest of the universe, about your consciousness, about how you are, like the root of you, right? Which is much deeper than the personality and everything else maybe that you've developed throughout the years. Does that answer your question? <laughs> Good. Now you can go back to school and outsmart your teacher. 
I'd like to see that conversation. <laughs> Now, this question comes from someone who is I, watching us I, on Facebook I, Live. I do get hate mail from some of the teachers yeah. out there, yes. Oh, man. <laughs> You've ruined my students. <laughs> If you're just joining us, or just wondering, we're listening to Nassim Haramein here on the Magical Mystery Tour. So Rokeshwa Haridas asks this, can we equate consciousness to God, equate thoughts and mind to God? Well, it depends what you mean by God, you know, that's the thing, the precision of language is so difficult. Um, if you mean by God, something that's omnipresent, omniscient, that's everywhere, that knows everything, that organizes everything, then you can associate that directly with the quantum vacuum oscillations. Right. And, and if that's true, then, and, and that's consciousness, then there, absolutely, you can, you can make that analogy. But if you make the analogy without the mechanics, without saying either what God is or consciousness is, then you're not much more advanced. So I take it you don't buy the standard model of physics and you don't buy the standard model of God? No, yes, I, I don't. Uh, and, 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 and the standard model of physics, I wouldn't say I don't buy it. I, I just, I modified it because it had big holes. At the foundation of physics, there was There was big holes in the understanding of physics. Like, if you asked, what is mass? What is electromagnetic fields? What is charge? What is gravity? All this was really, like, unknown, like the source of it, you know? Uh, we wrote physics equation, like one of the most commonly used physics equation, the most known, equals mc squared. It's a beautiful equation, um, except that it doesn't tell you anything about anything, meaning, We, if you ask, what is M in the equation? Mass. Mm -hmm. We say, we don't know what mass is. So that means, and then you ask, well, what is C? Well, we don't know why C is C. We don't know why the speed of light is the speed of light. So that means you have two unknowns on one side, the equal sign. That means you don't know what E is, right? Because it's equal to unknown. So, so now you have an equation. It's beautiful. There's an equivalence between three unknowns. So you know nothing about nothing. So... <laughs> so So I wanted to know. So this is a question from Clement Strzok. Once artificial intelligence becomes self-aware of its own existence and consciousness, how will this impact human consciousness? Well, I guess there's a category to that question, right? Firstly, do you agree that AI can attain consciousness as you define it? Right. Um, th this is really important because it's becoming so popular right now and I'm asked this question often and I had to meditate on it and it was a short meditation <laughs> uh, because it occurred very quickly to me that there's nothing artificial about consciousness. And so the concept of artificial 
consciousness or artificial intelligence didn't, you know, it doesn't compute. There's already a computational issue. Um, and so there's nothing artificial about intelligence. And what I mean by that is intelligence has nothing to do with crunching data. It has nothing to do with... Intelligence is a beautiful emergent field of information that includes emotions and all kinds of things that has nothing to do with crunching ones and zeros. Crunching ones and zeros will never get us to an intelligent, you know, being. Right. Um, um, so, so, do I believe that artificial intelligence will occur, meaning that we can place consciousness in an external device? Uh, yes, I believe we will get there. Uh, how we will get there? We will get there when we try, when we stop trying to do it by crunching ones and zeros and we learn how to tap into this fundamental field of information, of consciousness, and loop it back on itself on an external device, and then it will be self-aware. Um, self and when it becomes self-aware, it will have emotions, it will have empathy, it will have every characteristic that a human being has. Now, now what would that look like? Would that be, would, would that be using biological means combined with with electronic means. Um, I, I what, think, what do you mean by I think, tapping into consciousness? Um, I think it will be using plasma, um, high energy plasma structures in a very confined region of space that creates singularity, that creates a tap into the field. Um, and then uh, the system will become self-loop and become self-aware. Wow. Okay, so now that we've started talking about plasma, plasma is one of the states of matter. Um, scientists are always discovering new states of matter. Right now they are around seven. And plasma is the most dominant state of matter in the universe. Correct. Now, it's mostly of what we see on, in the universe and what we call not plasma is really plasma that's cooled off. I see. Now, right. this is a question from Hayden, who's 10 years old. And he, Hayden's my son, he's a big science geek. Right, Hayden? You want to just wave to the crowd? So, Hayden's curious to understand, how are you using plasma to control gravity? He looks like you. <laughs> um, I've got two boys. How old are you? Ten. I have an eight-year-old and a twelve-year-old. Um, what was the question? I bet that. <laughs> I was just going to say, you have an 8-year-old and a 10-year-old. I bet their teachers get so annoyed at that. <laughs> yes. So, oh my so God. Hayden was wondering, in your work, you're using plasma yes. to control gravity. And, and what you've said is, look, Elon Musk wants to get us to Mars using... Um, rocketry. Using rocketry. Yeah. And you said that that's a highly inefficient process. Within 10 years, we'll be able to use plasma in a specific way to control gravity. Correct. Yes. I... I that was your son's question? Well, no. <laughs> how, how are you doing it? Um, well, you know, they, okay, so, so first of all, it's not really feasible to colonize Mars or any other planet or even the moon using rocketry. You know, it makes absolutely no sense. It would be extremely difficult 
to supply, you know, the supply chain would be very, uh, very expensive. Uh, it would produce massive uh, ecological disaster. Uh, we would need hundreds of rockets going up every every week, every month, and it would make holes in the atmosphere. Anyway, it just it's not feasible. Um, control of gravity is the way we will go to space if we reach that and and we will uh, I'm confident we will and we will and you can tell the future because of technology because all you gotta do is look at science fiction everything that we have today was in science fiction prior to us having it because science fiction is the imagination of consciousness creating its future um, and just, so, just to give an example of that if you look if you were watching Star Trek The Next Generation in the 1990s and you notice that people in Star Trek using a um, tricorder right. we now have a tricorder in fact this is more advanced than the tricorders in Star Trek right. and it's called a smartphone <laughs> yes. right? and so and, and who would have thought that it would emerge in 18 years from 1990 exactly um, and, and things are accelerating and uh, what I'm talking about, gravity control, is not in five generations from now, like, it's not in ten generations from now, it's at our doorstep. You know, there's laboratories all around the world, including mine, working on it. And uh, NASA. And NASA. And you yeah. say this is going to come to the world within ten years. Oh, yes. Uh, we already have good results in some of the laboratories with some of the device and creating um, gravitational anomaly and so on and so we're on our way and it, it you know all of our current technology today came from us learning to control magnetic fields and electromagnetic fields from Maxwell's equation and Faraday and we've produced this amazing civilization technological civilization the next step um, is to learn to control gravity and birth our civilization into a space colony and, and you're doing this with plasma. Can you give a quick layman's idea of how you're doing this? Right. So uh, not all laboratories have taken that approach. Um, I, um, I've taken it because early on in the physics I wrote, I realized that we needed to spin highly dense magnetic field at, uh, at, at high velocity. And, we, and, and some of the experiments in microgravity alterations uh, came from spinning a superconductive uh, magnetic disk uh, at 5,000 RPM, but 5,000 RPM is very slow. Um, you can turn plasma right up to the speed, close to the speed of light. Uh, so you can imagine if you reproduce the same experiments but at a much higher velocity, you can get much larger effects. So, so it, it was clear to me that rotating a physical object was was too slow so I and I, I realized oh why don't we just biomimic what the universe is doing right because it's spinning plasma out there and it's producing gravitational field uh, let's make a little star in a jar you know so I um, I eventually manufactured and, and patented a, a device that um, that basically confines plasma inside a crystal ball <laughs> <laughs> I get in trouble, and it's all spinning, the way. and it's spinning this plasma, and, yeah, creating a gravity spin, field. Exactly, to produce gravitational alteration. So, yeah. so you believe that within ten years, 
we might be able to control gravity to some degree. Absolutely, yeah. What will I, this look like in terms of what we as humanity would then be capable of? Um, well, it looks like uh, being able to come off the surface, literally. Um, uh, controlling gravity will allow us to put all of our vehicles in the air. So flying cars, flying cars yeah, becomes a reality. Exactly, the, the Jetsons, <laughs> you know, right. um, that um, will occur um, and uh, that will allow us to remove most of the most of the pavement and roads and all this off the surface, give the earth back to the earth. Um, like obviously that leads to, I mean, Initially, it will probably just start with common uh, vehicles like planes no longer using carburation but using gravitational drive and so on. But eventually, individuals will have the same capability and it will allow you to, you know, fly outside the atmosphere into space, uh, go to the moon for the weekend, come back for, you know, lunch with a friend and go back for supper. Um, you know, it will allow us to move around about the solar system at a much faster rate. And every, if you look at the evolution of consciousness on our planet, it's directly linked to our capacity to move about. Uh, more, you know, from the cavemen that couldn't go very far, uh, to eventually us that are able to get on this metal object, which is completely crazy for even a hundred years ago, 150 years right. ago, if you said to someone, I'm going to get on this metal object and I'm going to go across the world to Australia, they would say you're completely, you got burnt at the stake for saying something like that. <laughs> right. But uh, now we do it daily and we don't think twice about it. It's just, it's going to be the same, it's just the mode, the technology behind it is going to be completely and, different. And, and that's very interesting to think about. If you go back a hundred years to the 1920s, uh, it, it would seem unconceivable. That was before Lindbergh flew across the Atlantic. It will seem right. inconceivable that today like air travel is so commonplace. And, and one of the things data points that really struck me was Peter Diamandis saying that between 1900 and 2000 there was a massive outburst in human innovation but there was an equal amount of innovation between 2000 and 2016 in 16 years and there's going to be an equal amount of innovation between 2016 and 2022 and what this means is that we're going through an exponential curve of innovation right. between 2016 and 2022 we will see as much innovation in the world as between 1900 and 2000 the invention of the airplane the transistor and so on and it's it's astonishing when you think about this so when the seam says that this is coming in 10 years it quite is it's quite possible that this may be so exactly and and uh, and there's a lot of people working on it and they're very smart people um and but importantly is that the 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 physics understanding and the theory behind it is, is, is now present, meaning we're starting to realize, oh my God, particles are not just in some, you know, vacuum space, but they're actually in, in a field, interacting with this field, and, and this is the fundamental discovery that's going to make all this possible. And so, and since that is present now and it's becoming more and more accepted by the standard community of physics, and there's an awful lot of smart people out there, uh, it's on its way. It's definitely on its way. Extraction of energy from the structure of space is, that is, that has been done and it's, it's, it's on its way to the public. And a gravitational control. Now, how soon before you think 
humanity can colonize a distant star. Because traveling to the moon just, is one thing. Just to address one thing about the naysayers out there, the, the physicists that throws tomatoes at me. Um, you know, even when, um, but I don't mind because I'm Italian so I can make good sauce with tomatoes. <laughs> but, uh, the, uh, you know, even when the Wright brothers flew the plane, and I'm not going to say the first plane because there was other people in Europe that were doing similar things. Um, the, um, I, for almost uh, up to 10 years, there was papers in physics that were being published proving without the shadow of the doubt that that could not be done and that it was a whole, it was a hoax. So, you know, it takes a little bit of time for people to catch up to where right. things are. Yeah. So, so how long? How long? How long before we can start sending human beings to Alpha Centauri? To Alpha Centauri? Yeah. Okay, well that's gonna be a little longer. <laughs> because we have to open wormholes and, and Right, so so wormholes, that's a whole other can of worms. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Definitely and a whole other kind of worms. And it's, um, but, the, but, the, but the physics are there. I mean, just want to make clear that when I'm talking about wormholes, um, you know, the, this is predicted by Einstein field equation. It's well supported by observation, meaning that like Einstein field equation in, in the form, in their classical form, are very well supported. But, um, but it was until recently taught that it's not possible to open any of those wormholes and travel through them because the energy requirement to do so were just over the top. Now that we have discovered that there's this field of information, this field of energy, zero point energy, energy present and that the density of that field is so high, um, now, it's, now the physics works out that absolutely you can open wormholes you, if you can tap into that field of energy. And that's why people like Sonny White at NASA and others are, are literally working on warp drives as we speak today. Right, right. That, that's astonishing they to can think. See, they can see in the physics and in the math that there's a path to getting there. So NASA is working on warp drives. Absolutely. And a warp drive would simply be the ability to open a wormhole to jump across space without being limited by the speed of light Correct. and using anti-gravity. Yeah, using gravity control. And, and that, you know, will take probably, a, you know, a while before we have the expertise to be able to safely reconstruct you on the other side of that wormhole, you know, so that all your molecules end up at the right place at the right moment. So it's like teleportation. Yes. So you mean when you go into a wormhole, you're disappearing? Is that what's going on? Well, you can think of it, and this is where standard theory doesn't quite cut, cut it to describe what's happening, and this is the new theory that's emerging, is basically the whole, all the particles in the universe are entangled. Um, and, and that's emerging, there's a, there's a theory by one of the greatest theorists on the planet that's called uh, ER equals EPR, and uh, this is from Sutskin and others, Montesino and others, that show that you can write physics, 
in such a way that um, that entangled particles, which we measure in laboratory. So, f does everybody know what entanglement is? Right. So, it, you can get two particles to be entangled in such a way that when you tickle this one, the other one laughs, and. It doesn't matter how far the other one is. It gets the joke. Like you tell it to this one, and the other one's laughing, and, and it's like, and and so, and and it means if you change the spin of a proton over here, the spin of the proton will align itself. That's right. No matter how far. No matter how far they are, and they are starting to be able to do it with macro objects like diamonds, right. so that you hit this diamond with a laser, and the other one is wiggling like you're hitting it with the laser and so basically and there's no delay that is it doesn't matter how far the particles are when you it's instantaneous when you modify this one the other one is modified now if that's instantaneous then information there is traveling faster than the speed of light well this is why quantum theory and relativity don't agree so well um, but that's the beauty of this view that's emerging that came you know I came to different the same conclusion from a different angle uh, ER equals EPR ER is for uh, Rosenbridge's Einstein Rosen right ER uh, which is the wormhole equals EPR, which is Einstein Podolsky Ren, uh, um, uh, uh, Rosen, which is entanglement at the quantum level. So it's saying that the reason particles become entangled is because wormholes form between wow. them, which, which is basically relativity applied at the quantum level. You see, so th that's where unification of physics. So entanglement, particle entanglement, is yes. an evidence for micro wormholes. Micro wormholes connecting things, and so basically, when you're, what we're gonna do when we're traveling through wormholes is basically we're gonna we're gonna make since everything is entangled, and that is coming out in these equations as well that we're gonna make the information of you and the ship and everything in the ship the whole universe well we're gonna throw it into the wormhole black hole structure network of the universe and reconstruct it on the other side on you know it might be a galaxy thousands and thousands of billions of light years away from here. So, so then, is that traveling through a wormhole or is that teleportation? What is the difference? Uh, well, yeah, you can think of it as teleportation, um, but in, in reality, I mean, it depends how you think of teleportation, and the reason I'm hesitating is because there's very specific precise language in physics that describe teleportation and I'm trying to like say it in a more layman way but but let's just say that basically I'm gonna I'm deconstructing all the information that you are and reconstructing it on the other side after it has gone through the network of the universe, right? But if, but if that's true, then you're deconstructing someone and bringing them back. Can you deconstruct someone, back them up, so when they die, you can recreate them? Can we, bring <laughs> people, can we then bring people back from the dead? 
Like, could I have backup copies of my favorite dog? Uh, you, yeah. <laughs> you already uh, do, but um, because the information is in the structure of yeah, space. Yeah, and, and if Hayden disappoints me as an adult, could I just, you know... <laughs> Recreate, recreate a ten-year-old. Oh, that's and, a whole other story. Yeah, <laughs> because you might be not so agreeable to Hated, that idea. I'm just kidding. Uh, yes, but um, um, my twelve-year-old is already not so agreeable with some of my ideas. But um, you, uh, you can imagine that. Um, yes, I mean, what I'm saying is that. What you are is information in the structure of space, and you're constantly updating the universe. Every Planck second, you're actually updating the universe about your experience. And, and so you can think of yourself as actually like, you know, being here and not being here, being here and not being here. So let, let me put it in more simple terms. Let's, um, I, I'm going to give you an example. I hope it won't take too long. I'm going to try to make sure. it short. I, ha I have, you know, you, you're trying to do a simple physics calculation, right? You, you would think you can do in high school. Right. You want to know how fast your hand is going from A to B. Simple, clear, you know, you start at A, it goes to B, you, ca you, you figure out how long it took to get there, and you can output the velocity at which it had to travel to go from A to B. Is that true? No. If you're trying to do real physics, if you're trying to actually be completely honest about what you're trying to measure, you have a huge problem. Because as your hand went from A to B, the earth was spinning. And so you have to add that velocity to your hand moving, and it's spinning pretty fast. And then that's going around the sun, right? The earth is going around. So now you have to add that velocity because while your hand was moving, it did move in that direction with the earth and around the sun, right? So you have to add that. And then the sun is going at 300 kilometers per second in the galaxy. So now you have to add that. And then the galaxy is orbiting and then, then around the, the cluster, the super... And like, whoa! Your hand is going millions of miles per second now. <laughs> right? And so, and eventually, if you keep adding that, eventually you get to the speed of light. So, like, what is going on? What is your hand doing? Well, it's only moving at that velocity you calculated in high school relative to you. But relative to the universe, what is the universe doing when it's moving then? What is movement? What is that, right? Well, the only conclusion you can come to is that your hand is undoing itself, redoing itself, undoing itself, redoing itself. Un so it's your hand is your hand, and then it's the hole, and then it's your hand, and then it's a hole, and then it's your hand, then it's the hole. And it's happening at frames of Planck time, so it's happening really, really fast. Just like a movie is frames that appears to produce linear motion, but is actually frames, uh, you know, that are being passed by a light at speed high enough that you don't see the, the discontinuity. So, from that point of view, our bodies are deconstructing and reconstructing itself at Planck second intervals and the, across and the universe, across millions of miles. Yeah, imagine, imagine that concept 
like now imagine that that's occurring at the Planck scale, right? Very, very, very fast. And then imagine the the the, the dampening of that same undoing and redoing itself happening at a much larger scale, like biology. You're doing that right now. You know, fission like a month ago is not the same guy like you've redone your liver you've redone your your blood a whole bunch of times you've redone your skin you and within three years you pretty well redone the whole thing mm. right so you're actually redoing it undoing and redoing yourself like every second as well which which opens up this question and this is the final question. This is from one of our viewers. Oh, I just want to finish the analogy. So now you can imagine if I get this undoing, redoing thing, first of all, I can redo myself a little different if I want to be different. But I can undo my hand there and redo it there without doing all the points in between. Mm -hmm. See? Space travel across the universe. Mind blowing. <laughs> So, so you just but if said you something. you do that, bring your body with it. Because you just <laughs> not so good. You just you just touched on something, All right. which is so mind-bending. We don't we not we can't go really deep into it. But you said you can redo yourself somewhat different. You can change your physical appearance. You can change your biology. Now this comes to a question from KT, who's watching online, and she says, "Can we train our programs?" Or bodies to heal itself from any disease and stop aging, sort of like Wolverine from X-Men. <laughs> that image never occurred to me, but I can see how that. Um, yes, I, I, uh, I, I, I totally believe so. I, uh, so why is your body keep redoing itself the same way? Because it has memory in the structure of space, right? So. So now, well, if your consciousness is interacting, is the interaction of that memory in space, then you should ultimately have the control on what is being remembered, right? right. So if you change what's being remembered, then you should get a direct correlation to what's happening when your body is redoing itself. It might redo. So if it keeps redoing itself with a tumor on the liver, why can't you change it to redoing itself without the tumor on the liver? Well, people do all the time. Actually, 30% of the people do. They, they call that the placebo effect, right? Or spontaneous remission, right. right? So there's a very high level of studies that are occurring right now to see the impact, people call it like the impact of consciousness on reality and on our body. And we see clearly in these studies that we have the capacity to change the material world, even to influence computers, random generators. You sit the person in front of a random generator and you ask them to influence it. And, and, and I'm not talking some like guru from India or right. some you know, psychic or right. just like you pluck somebody off the street, you put them in front of a computer and you ask them to influence yeah, it. Yeah, Princeton, Princeton University study time. Yeah, right. So we are out of time. So thank you guys. Thank you, Nassim. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me.
was Nassim Haramein, one of those very rare people who has been studying the nature of the universe since he was a child and who deeply understands quantum physics and relativity as very, very few people do. This is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield, WGDH Hardwick, Goddard College Community Radio. going to hear the first interview I did with Dan Siegel a few months ago that I didn't play here because there were some audio issues that occurred at a couple of times during the interview. But they're not that bad, and this seems like a great time to play it after hearing from Nassim Haramein. Dan Siegel is well known as a pioneer in the field of interpersonal neurobiology, He's a professor of clinical psychiatry at the UCLA School of Medicine, and he's the author of numerous books, including The Neurobiology of We, The Whole Brain Child, Mindsight, and most recently, Aware, The Science and Practice of Presence. Hi, Dan. Welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you. Good to be here. I'm so glad to have you on. I've been wanting to have you on my show for years, and I'm really excited to talk about this wonderful new book of yours, Aware, the Science and Practice of Presence. Thank you. Thank you. And one of the things that I especially love about this is that you integrate all my favorite subjects and that are totally relevant to our human lives and, and the human condition. Well, I'm so grateful that you're finding it that way because um, obviously it takes a lot of work to put this together and I'm so glad it's accessible and, and uh, available in these integrated ways. Thank you. I find it to be brilliant the way you put things together and you, you create in a sense, you create whole new languages, whole new models of ways to understand things in more scientific terms, which is something that I greatly appreciate because I like having a more scientifically consistent way of, of understanding these things. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm, I'm just like you. So, uh, you know, to combine the actual experience with the science was really my goal and to, to allow them to be kind of woven together and to mutually support each other. That's, that's what I was really hoping for. So I'd like to begin with a line from the book that you return to periodically. The plane of possibility can be thought of as a portal to integration. And that's a yeah. line that I can relate to a lot in my life and the way I've been thinking about things and sensing things. And I would love 
for you to unpack that line and to explain how the plane of possibility can connect us to integration and then use it as a kind of springboard to get into the nature of mind, awareness, and presence, and, of course, how we can learn to use our mind to direct our attention and awareness to create greater integration in our lives, in our brains, and in the world around us as well. Yes, yes. Wow. Well, you know, you're getting right to the heart of the matter. (laughs) Um, For those who haven't read the book yet, let me back up just a half a step and just say that when you do the wheel of awareness practice, you're distinguishing the hub of awareness, of being aware, from the rim of what you're aware of, like my saying hello. There's the hello on the rim, but the knowing that I've said hello is actually in the hub. Now, when you see it this way, you start doing a practice, if you're up for it, called the wheel of awareness, where you move a spoke of attention around the rim, and then you bend the spoke right into the hub itself. And when you do this practice, like I do this every day, it's my regular practice, you start to have this experience that in the hub itself, there's this expansiveness, this, what you know, I've done this with 10,000 people and had them share that when they got into the hub, they felt this openness, this clarity, this sense of connection that they didn't have before, a sense of love. For some people, they felt God. For some people, it was just peacefulness and joy. And this happened over and over and over again. So I kept on asking myself, both as an educator doing the workshops, but also as a scientist, just wondering, like, what in the world is going on with this metaphor of a wheel that could bring people to these states of openness and clarity just in this very brief practice. So I went to the science of the brain, and there's some very interesting things about consciousness in the brain, but ultimately what they say is the brain creates states of integration that seem to be activated when we're aware. And that's helpful to a certain degree and interesting, but it doesn't actually illuminate why in the Wheel of Awareness practice in the 10,000 person study did people have this experience of wide open expansiveness. So I went beyond just the science of the brain to an earlier proposal that the mind was an emergent property of energy that happens both within us, including our brain and our rest of our body too, so it's fully embodied, but also between us and our relationships, and then went to the science of energy. And I got to spend a lot of time with physicists who are the experts in energy, and they said, when I said, what is energy, what is energy? They said, ultimately, energy can be seen as the movement from possibility to actuality. And that really threw me because I didn't know what they were talking about. And usually when people hear that, they go, what? What are you talking about? But when you really map out what these physicists mean, what I think is going on is the wheel of awareness lets us experience directly that the rim points are when energy is manifested in the actuality, or sometimes even increased probabilities called plateaus and the actualities are peaks. But these are all higher states of probability, you know, 100% for an actuality, for example. But when you drop all the way down 
to the possible million words I could say before I say it. It's one out of a million, so we call it near zero. I think, it's just a suggestion, that awareness comes from this plane of possibility. And if that's true, then when you access the hub of the wheel practice, that's a metaphor, the mechanism is you're dropping into the plane of possibility. And there are a number of implications of that. But one is that you are aware, for whatever reason we don't know. The second is that you can pause between your peaks that arise, so pause between an impulse and an action. It's also that when you drop into awareness, you're tapping into the mathematical space of the mind that is where other choices rest. So you can actually choose other things. And then the other things that are kind of amazing is that, this gets to your question, integration is the linking of differentiated parts. It's the natural drive of the mind as what's called a self-organizing process. Basically, it's the natural drive of the mind. So when you drop out of these peaks and plateaus and into the plane, it's the portal through which integration is allowed to emerge. So you don't have to make it happen. What you do is you get rid of the obstacles to you dropping into awareness. Drop into open awareness, and then integration can be allowed to occur. That's basically, I think, the fastest summary you'll ever get in the book. I do it much more slowly. So if your listeners hear this and they go, oh, my God, this is too complicated, you know, I do it really slowly. My daughter, Maddie, she does all the drawings for the book, so you see it step-by-step laid out in the second part of the book. Um, So this is just a very condensed summary, just so people can begin um, to get a feeling for what the plane of possibility is and, you know, how appropriate your question is of why is the plane the portal through which integration arises. And that's the best I can do for a brief online live summary of what's going on, I think. I remember while I was reading, that was one of the most grueling parts of the book, to adapt to a whole new language and model of understanding, translating that experience. How did it go for you as you went through it? Because it is new, and taking on anything new is tough, and I think I even acknowledge that in the book. But what what was it like for you to, to, to get through it? Um, it was very satisfying. I always read very slowly anyway, just because I I want to understand things. And everything that you were talking about really resonates with my own personal experience and my own sense that everything seems to emerge out of that plane of possibility. And that leads me to this question that did occur, whether you had any distinction between the term presence and the plane of possibility. Yeah, you know, I think the plane of possibility is where presence comes from. So presence is, I think, a very accessible term. It's a term used in the research, you know, um, you can study mental presence, basically receptive awareness. So I think the plane is the scientific mechanism that helps us understand presence. Right. It's a kind of mathematical explanation for it. Yeah, because here's the thing that's so, I think, exciting about where we're at. Yes, we're born into a body, and the body is composed of matter, you know, all these molecules. That's fine. And Sir Isaac Newton figured out how Newtonian properties work 350 years ago, and that's great. But your mind is more than matter. It's part of the same reality, but it's not condensed 
energy. You know, remember E equals MC squared. This is what Einstein taught us. So small bits of energy are called microstates, and those are electrons and photons and things like that. So the world of microstates is studied with a whole different set of laws called quantum properties. And these quantum laws actually don't overlap with Newtonian classical physics laws of big objects like planets or your body or a bicycle or something. In the Scientific American July 2018, the cover story was about when does the Newtonian classical world meet the quantum physics realm? And I think what happens with the mind is the mind is an emergent property of energy. And so aspects of it have Newtonian properties of you know, certainties, you know, like a thought can come and go, and a certainty is you can't get back that thought that's called the arrow of time. So you have a feeling of time passing called an arrow, directionality of change in certain aspects of the mind. But with the wheel practice, what becomes clear is that in the hub, in this plane of possibility, you're probably more in the quantum realm of energy. And I'm not making that up. That's an accepted part of science, the quantum realm is. What I'm suggesting is that consciousness itself, being aware, is actually having elements of the quantum state. What are those? One of them is that people describe that time disappears and that there is no arrow of time. That's just one component. The other is that things are filled with uncertainty, right, which is what the quantum world is all about, not absolute certainties, but just emerging probabilities. So the bottom line is we have a mind that is more than just physical objects. So while people may hear you say, oh, the plane of possibility is a mathematical space, well, the way quantum physicists talk about energy is with mathematical spaces. I mean, it may be unusual for us to start thinking this way, but it's actually scientific. It's grounded in science. It may feel abstract at first, but when you dip into pure awareness, this actually helps us understand it in a scientific way. Mm -hmm. And another aspect of dropping into presence is the sense of I-ness seems to disappear. Yes, exactly. And I, in a way, is a constructed almost, and sometimes doesn't have to be this way, but it can be more like a Newtonian fixed structure. We call it a plateau in this diagram. And dropping out of the imprisonment that that can sometimes be, not always, but sometimes, is really a source of freedom. Mm -hmm. And at first it can be scary because, you know, you want to know exactly who you are and, and be able to say, this is for certain about me. But when you drop into the plane, you get past those fears of being without certainty and you feel the freedom because ultimately what the synonym for uncertainty is, is possibility. And when people learn to do the wheel of awareness practice, they get access to the hub, which is the plane of possibility. Then they start to learn, wow, I have just become free. And as one workshop participant, I said, how's it going? You know, she pointed to her, her smile and she said, this is all I'm going to say. And there's this huge, huge smile on her face of relaxation, of clarity, of freedom. And her friends, who are also at the workshop with her, said they have never seen her so relaxed and so filled with joy. Mm -hmm. And that's the choice. That's that's the option that the mind has. It can go in different directions. It can go in the direction of free and open 
infinite possibility or it can go into that realm of past probability of our old ways and habits of, of thinking of things. Exactly. And that's a beautiful way of describing presence, which is where you've dropped out of a fixed way of being and say, look, I want to just be present for what happens. I don't know exactly how I'm going to respond. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't have to control it. I can let myself drop into presence and let life happen like that. And when people do that, all sorts of kind of awesome things, literally filled with awe things, happen. They've happened, I mean, since I did this with all these, like literally 10,000 people in the study, but now a lot more, the feedback has been just so fascinating and consistent that when you access this hub of the wheel through the practice, it looks like you really are tapping into this plane of possibility where new ways of being are waiting for you to just tap into them and letting them emerge rather than being lost in a particular, we call it a plateau, which just only has certain peaks that come out. And once you see, as you, you saw when you made it through that part of the book, once you try on the new vocabulary, having conversations with people about the plane and about not getting caught up in plateaus and peaks of the past, it becomes a deep, deep conversation that itself is quite liberating to be able to share with people. I totally agree. And another wonderful aspect of this plane of possibility is that's the easiest place where we can all connect. Exactly. And you talk a lot about this me and we, and then you have this term of your own combining the two, we, because it's not just about me or just about we, as you say, but the interrelationship of it. Exactly. And that, that we, it's so interesting what a little teeny word, a three-letter word can do. You know, that we has been for myself, I can say, but also for so many people I've talked to, a way of literally integrating identity and saying, how can I be in this world and have a sense of belonging where I don't give up my individuality? You know, because if I go me to we, I'm giving up me to go to we. But how do you actually have both? And we just lets you embrace the two of them. That has been an issue that I've been playing with much of my life. And, and I love the way you integrate all of this in really all of your work, but especially in this new book. And I wish we had more time. Well, let's find another opportunity to converse one coast to the other someplace. And yeah, this is great. And, you know, the thing that's so exciting is if you get, let's say, like people reading it and having this kind of conversation, it'll be so thrilling to see where a conversation about the plane of possibility and from the plane of possibility will take you. Exactly. So that's the next yes. chapter in our, our journey, all the, we together. Yes, absolutely. And I've been having conversations about this, but I, I am excited to do exactly that, get into these deeper conversations. I'm so grateful for your time, and I'm so glad that I'm finally getting to talk with you. And I have such great appreciation f for this very difficult, grueling work that you're doing of, of integrating it all. Well, so thank, thank you. you. Thank you. I hope through the gruel we get to the goodness and the peace and clarity of it all. <laughs> thank you. That's the whole point of the gruel is to get <laughs> to that place. You know, and it's a great way to say it because, you know, when you go through a period of hard work and transformation, you really come through the other end with a reorganization that is really quite 
fantastic. Exactly. Exactly. Well, again, thank you so much. A pleasure. Thank you. Be well. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye. That was Dan Siegel. He's a professor of clinical psychiatry at the UCLA School of Medicine. And he's the author of numerous books, including The Neurobiology of We, The Whole Brain Child, Mindsight, and most recently, Aware, The Science and Practice of Presence. Next, we're going to hear from Alnur Lada from The Rules and therules.org, talking with Doug Rushkoff, who is the author of several books, including Program or Be Programmed. From a, from a, a Sufi perspective, what we would say is God is an emergent phenomena. God is a metaphor for the universe. And God is everywhere, right? Allah is everywhere. So we are the universe unfolding on itself. And the universe wanted to feel this expression of what it is to be seven billion humans or the birds and the bees and the wind and et cetera, et cetera. And, and in some ways, our purpose is uh, to help guide that evolution. And so I don't really believe in the new age ideal that the universe is on path and everything's perfect. And there's a great Ram Das line where he says, well, the universe is perfect, including my desire to change it. And that, that's sort of more my perspective is more quantum physics perspective, which is we meet the universe halfway. There's no predestiny. You know, the, the old mystics were wrong about predestiny and providence. Mm. But there's also the, the Western rationalists were wrong. There's no pure agency. There's, there's a meeting of the universe halfway that comes from uh, intention and it comes from entanglement and it comes from context. And when we set our intention and we actually influence the ability of atoms to move in a certain way. And then our reaction, our observation, then changes the sort of multiverses of possibility. And the whole thing just happens at every moment simultaneously in this infinite progress or regress or however you want to say it. And there's just infinite zero points over and over and over. Do you see human beings as having a, I hate to use a word like this, but a special place in this, in this whole order? Mm. You know, I think part of the hangover from Darwinism and neo-Darwinism is the belief that human beings are the pinnacle, the culmination of life. And I don't believe that. I think we're the newest and youngest members of the, the family of life. But I, I feel that human beings play a central role as stewards, as a companion species. Yet we somehow think we've evolved outside of the Argaian mother. You know, we think that evolution for human beings is taking on some other trajectory, some other spin that is outside of life. And I don't believe, I think that's the most insane, I think that's actually a driver of a lot of our psychosis. And, you know, we were saying this earlier in our discussion here at CUNY with the Media Studies Group that when human beings went to the moon for the first time, Gaia saw herself differently than she ever could have because we are Gaia and we were reflecting back this vision from the moon and human beings are going to play a central role somehow in bringing Gaian life 
outside of, of the solar system. You know, our sun has a 10 billion year half-life. We're, she's not going to be here forever. And the human beings that exist a billion years from now are going to be as different to us as we are from single-cell amoebas. We have no idea what they're going to be, which is why we have to preserve life and have to be pro-life, because whatever life exists at the, you know, whatever we want to call the end of days or the eschaton or that moment 10 billion years from now, they're going to be, we are going to be its progeny and vice versa. And so we know we're hardwired to defend life. All life is. And there's a reason for that. And I do believe in some kind of teleological directionality and you know mckenna to bring back mckenna used to talk about the this increase in complexity and this is what complexity theory was about novelty is increasing and it's increasing at an infinite rate even the speed of light is changing mm-hmm. you know the boiling point of elements are changing and so of course there's a trajectory and he used to say we're in parking orbit of the eschaton <laughs> you know or one of those great mckennaisms were and the eschaton being the christian study of the end of times eschatology And we do feel that we're in parking orbit of some eschaton, of some major transcendental moment. It's it's around us and humans are playing a role. And I really believe we've reincarnated here on Gaia in 2017 in 3D for a reason. I don't pretend to know that reason. And, and I think, you know, the mystery of life is not a problem to be solved. It's a mystery to surrender to. And that's the role the plants play and that's the role meditation plays and that's the role any transcendental experience plays for me. It's funny that the theme I've been working on lately, maybe close with this, is uh, human beings are not the problem. You know, we're at least part of the solution. You know, and I feel Definitely. like the world that we're in, when you listen to the philosophies of Google or Wall Street mm. or Washington, mm. it's as if humans are the thing that has to be fixed. Right. You know, and that's a transposition of figure and ground. Of, right. Of, of sub- it's the, it's the ground that has to be fixed right. it's the the system that we're living in that right. has to be fixed right. not you know enough with the totally the, the pills so, and the social control and the, the mind shifting and the no, but, but this is the thing they don't understand right or they don't want to understand which is human beings are highly contextual beings we're neither good nor bad. We're highly contextual. And for 99% of our history, we were hunter-gatherers that lived in small egalitarian tribes with very little hierarchy. We had social sanctions to punish leaders that took advantage of their power. And we roughly had the same calories. You know, we were working 10 hours a week. You know, this is all the Marshall Salins original affluent society understanding and the whole understanding of cultural anthropology, of evolutionary psychology, of behavioral economics is that we are actually altruistic, cooperative, egalitarian. And what's happened is that the dominant neoliberal, capitalist, Western rationalist discourse is about human beings who fell from grace, who made the mistakes of eating the apple that we, of course, blame on on the female character in the story, that essentially... Are, are greedy, short-term is selfish, you know, the Hobbesian worldview, the Darwinian worldview. And as a result, we have to fix ourselves. And it's, it's the, 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 the sort of like great uh, Judeo-Christian Islamic remorse, you know, that's then institutionalized in universities where, uh, look who's running Google and who's running the State Department. They all went to the same schools, the same Ivy League schools. They're largely white. They're educated in the same way. They aspire to the same leather chairs. You know, what they think is beautiful, their aesthetic milieu is the same. 
And those are the people we're allowing to lead artificial intelligence and our relationship with technology, lead the nation states, lead the corporations. And they inherently believe that human beings are flawed and greedy and evil. And so, of course, the world is going to reflect what they believe because that intentionality is quantum. It is embedded in every atom. And, and they're the, the power brokers who are in control of the material world. And now we're telling a better story. We're telling new stories. We understand that we're hardwired for empathy, that we have mirror neurons, that we're highly cooperative, we're highly altruistic. And we're going to create new experiments that reflect those new values. And when we do, we're going to make their system obsolete. And we're also having a better time in that process. And they're going to look at us and say, well, they're having a way better time. They're happier doing that because even the one percenters aren't happy. Their right. kids are on Ritalin. They're on ADD. They're totally disconnected. You know, they're, they're, they're not happy. Like no one could tell me Donald Trump is a happy man. And I think that is the hope for the revolution, that they themselves know it. Thanks. Thanks, Al Norlata, for... Uh incarnating in the same general time and space as me so uh-huh. we get to do this again i'm sure we've done it before but uh i don't remember we were probably killed for it yeah <laughs> the memory has been removed from our right. DNA. or maybe we did it in the future you know that's <laughs> the way i roll so thanks so much and everybody you can find out more go to the rules.org is a good trailhead for a lot of this and we'll put a bunch more links on the on the team human website That's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, have a wonderful week.